Welcome back to my interview with Alan Gross and Jane Townsend. If you haven't listened to part one, please do, because it'll set up this second part nicely, and I think it's important to get the full picture, because it um, follows a certain narrative. Here we go. One of the things that point out when people say, oh, you know, pharma just manipulates physicians, they're manipulating the data. And I say this openly, and usually most physicians back down, I said, if a physician can do critical appraisal, there's no reason they can't look at the data, make a decision, and understand what's going on. Nobody is outright lying to them. I mean, there are cases. There's that- some that are misleading, probably. <laughs> But I think you have to also think of doctors as just being consumers. They are being inundated with so much information. Think of yourself trying to make a car decision or a, I don't know, whatever other decision. There's so much out there. And what you do, you go to Consumer Reports to read what is out there because you can't make anything out of all the claims and the advertising. Well, multiply that by all the data that's out there. Right now we're going through some research for our own personal needs. And we're trying to sort through this stuff. There's so much out there. I'm trying to decide, should we look at this clinical trial? Should we do that? It's impossible to get your head around it all. And if I were a doctor, there is no way. We were talking with with Alan's doctor the other day. There's no way any one doctor can keep all of this in their heads. There's just too much, and there's too much noise. It's not only that there's the research data, There's the TV commercial, there's the dinner meeting, there's the public relations. There's the CME. And I confess, we were a part of that problem. We helped start that problem. And I'm embarrassed now that I had a part in it. I think that my efforts to push consumer advertising, I wish I hadn't done it now because it's beware of unintended consequences. Well, Well, that's what we got from my perspective that now we're listening to 30-second commercials that are all disclosure about possible death, you know? All of this mumbling stuff, that's not good for anyone. It's not good for the consumer. It's only good for the companies because they've got... It's good for the media. The media, and and that's who's making all the money. You look at a consumer magazine now, what do you see? Nothing but pharmaceutical advertising. That's who's keeping Time magazine and all these magazines, even the women's magazines, afloat. Or is this pharma advertising? And I, I don't know. I think but, there's, but two, was your there's so much noise. For, what was your vision for a consumer? It was for educating the consumer to learn more about their diseases. I don't know. That's hard because it was 20 years ago. And I'm that's having so a hard hard time hard. remembering. No, I, I think it's yeah. not so hard. I think it came out of our work with Merck and Mevacor, yes. where this was the first drug that really worked for cholesterol, controlling cholesterol. The problem was... The market was very small. No one knew they even, needed to control though, it. You know, millions and millions of people had elevated cholesterol. They didn't go to their doctors for this. The doctors weren't testing for this all the time. And so we came up with a campaign with television commercials, with you know, consumer brochures. and, and Know your numbers, yeah. Know your number. It was designed so that people would become aware that there was a problem, go to their doctors. It didn't offer a solution. It didn't say Mevacor, by the way, you're going to get the whole, you know. <laughs> but those at risk could be identified and then and treated. treated. And that became one of the first billion dollar drugs. I wasn't on the brand, but watching it going on, you were in the forefront of that. It was important. Jane, to go back to your point about the consumers, right now there's a whole 
group of consumers out there, they're called e-patients, meaning engaged patients. And if you look at the data... And that's who I wanted to <laughs> but, but <that's>, engage. <laughs> but they are engaged. And what they're doing, if you look at the data, Pew Trust did some research. And 70% of all adults have gone online to use the internet to search for healthcare advice. When you get down to people with chronic illness, it expands. It's not just the patient, it's a family. And that's so, wonderful. That's what would we, we do without it? Yeah. That's what we should be doing, and, and that's what they're doing. And the roadblock they're facing now is that a lot of physicians are holding their hands up. Somebody's coming in. and But they're not coming in saying, Doctor, I want I this think drug. I'm, I think I'm depressed. No, they're coming in and saying, I saw this drug, this purple pill, and I want to try that because I'm sure I'm depressed. Right. You know? Now, how in the world can a consumer make a judgment? And how can a doctor say, no, the purple pill, the blue pill, okay, we'll give you a, you know, there's no incentive for him not to go along with it because there's no real comparative data to show that purple is better than blue. It puts the doctor in a very bad position. It's not WebMD, it's MyMD. The relationship you have with your MD should support what research you're doing on the internet, should help you. The physician can take charge of how you're assimilating new information and data and what you're doing. But the doctors doing. don't have time, time I know they don't have time, but they have websites. So here's a product. I'll give you a new business that you could create right now. <laughs> Anybody out there listening, there should be a business to coach patients on their education they're learning. Many of these organizations have a lot there, you know, but it's all sort of one way. They put their information up on the internet and then you can read it and that sort of stuff. But there ought to be a business where an informed researcher or studier of the problem could help guide a patient into what they needed to be studying and get them ready to talk to the doctor and not just, I want the purple pill, but I've looked at X, Y, and Z, and it looks to me like X is better for my situation. Do you agree or not? Or you go to the doctor and say, give me three drugs I should investigate so we can make this decision instead of... You really or the physician engaged. turns it around and says, let me give you three. Here's exactly. where you go to look. Exactly. Here's, here's in my learned behavior. But there are these groups called e-patients or patients like me. It's one of the biggest websites out there. You go in, you find patients like you, you sit and chat, you share your experiences with your illness... I'm not that, sure I go with that. Unless it's a monitored program where there's... Moderated? No. They're not yeah, moderated. I, I don't know. And, because and, there's so many hypochondriacs out there and so oh, many yeah. so many people who have wrong information. I've, I've seen some of those sites and I, I'm not, I don't like them a lot. <laughs> yeah, I'm not crazy about it either because when Donna was first diagnosed, I started going to these chat groups online through one of the reputable organizations, Cancer Care, and I was appalled. Everybody starts to one up with a horror story. The yeah. next person, you know, what's worse? But and, and the, that's like a clinical trial of one. That yeah. doesn't do you any good. <laughs> or you know, they're horrible. My husband went through this, this, and this, and why are you going to go through it? But to your point, Jane, one of the things that I think that either universities or academics can do would be go to local libraries and hold classes once a week for people who want to learn how to search the internet and understand healthcare. Yeah, how to how read to a read, clinical trial, how, how to read, read a, a New England Journal article. Yeah. And, and how to take that information in. And I think it's the ideal thing. The public libraries all have it. But public libraries are being defunded as, you know, the, the problem is that the money is with the big companies and not with the education 
and the libraries. You know, that there's no funding for that stuff. There's only money where the products are being sold for big dollars. Through the Mevacor and, and as you saw these changes going on, can you characterize the difference when you started working in that tight little box that was a lot of fun and having a lot of fun and creating and where it ended up for you? When I started in the business 43 years ago, it's not quite 50. Not quite 50. Okay. close to almost everybody in the business was a pharmacist or some, some kind of scientist or you know, somebody who started medical school and dropped out. Or their parents worked for the company. Or... And, and when I started working at Squibb in the 1960s, I knew people whose grandparents had worked for Squibb over in Brooklyn. This was a family business. They knew the Weicker family. They knew the Squibb family. This was a different industry. It was a different world frankly, because Eli Lilly was the same, Park Davis was the same. They were all based on, like the agencies, individuals. And there was a respect for that individual. I mean, I, when I was becoming a sales rep, I had to learn about Edward Squibb. What did he do? Who was he? Why did, why did he matter? And the fact that he signed his bottles of ether in the Civil War so people knew it was good ether and not going to kill the soldiers. That's the business I came into somewhere in the 80s. It's about the time the yuppies were landing. <laughs> yeah. The business was being now taken over by, and I hope your, your listeners will forgive me, by MBAs, not scientists, not people who grew up in the industry, not people who even, in my opinion, cared about the industry, were proud of the they were business graduates were, who wanted to be president of the company. <laughs> right. And that meant that if you were a product manager, you had to be the most outstanding product manager because that's how you went up the ladder. And that didn't mean necessarily that you would work with the other product managers or with your agency, that you wanted your stamp. And your name. And your name associated with every success. Well, that's a whole different world. And that was the time that the loyalty started to disappear. It used to be you didn't even have to have a, a contract. You'd have a contract, but you didn't have to have sure, a contract. Simple. They just told you how you were going to get paid. Yeah. Then, starting in the mid to late 80s, even if you had a contract, it didn't mean anything. You'd be gone tomorrow if a new product manager comes in and wants to put his stamp on it. It's the product manager who's now king, and the loyalty was gone. I think what I'm hearing now is that loyalty was going, but we still had loyalty within our company. We were loyalty, loyal to our employees, and, and they were loyal to us. I think that's even gone now. It's all me. You know, I'm out for me. I want to get ahead, and I don't care about anybody else. That's but, what I hear. But to your point, Alan, and I think it's an important sort of nuance, pride in your company. I remember when I worked for Coulter, we had to know the story of Wally Coulter, how he would fill his car up in Chicago with Coulter counters. He'd buy a new car, fill them up, drive until he sold them all, sell the car, get on a train, go back to Chicago, get another one and do that again. But we took pride in that because we felt we were like Wally Coulter. That was our mission. Yes. And I think that was an attitude that was very prevalent in the industry back then. And I wonder, I asked the question, we're talking about the healthcare industry. 
how much of that is also in the automobile industry and the food industry. It's probably a world crisis, you know, of, of loyalty. And I don't know. It, I it, think it, you're right. When everything is less personal, and maybe part of that is because of advertising, making it less personal, less detail rep talking to doctor and more TV talking to doctor. I don't know. It may be the case in many industries. It's lamentable. I don't know if it's reversible, I doubt. <laughs> I have to say it, it's pride in what you do, the relationship with who you're working with. I mean, I'm still friends with Scott Fishman. I'm going down to his birthday party next month. I'm invited down. I talk to him all the time. But he was my client out at Squibb. Yeah, we've still, we still, still have a lot of personal friends who were clients. It may be happening now, too. We don't know because we've been out of it for 20 yeah. years. So. Well, I want to thank you. We've got... Sometime is going to probably be a two-parter. And again, I thank you very much. People listening to this, and I think it's going to be the probably people from the industry, you know, everybody we know. For these younger physicians, and I know hopefully I'll get a bunch of physicians to come and listen to this because I'm going to say you have to hear what it was like and what we did and how we behaved. Why would they care? Because they have this attitude, it's us against them, meaning pharma, and I'm going to look taller by standing on pharma every chance I get, as opposed to saying, what can I learn or what can I do? Maybe what I'm trying to do is go back and, 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 and you know, romance the history and say, we did it differently when but physicians even, even wanted though to was, learn. Even though it was different, I don't know that you can go back and change things. I, I think the fact that it was different and maybe we think it was better, that's not going to help the physicians today. I don't know. Is there something we could do to help the physicians today? The best thing I've seen in months has been that 60 Minutes thing where the doctors at Sloan Kettering were protesting right. the high price of drugs. That's what doctors need to be doing now. They need, when they see an advertisement on TV that they hate, they ought to say something. When they see a price tag they hate, they ought to do something like that guy did. That's the only thing that matters right now, not history. <laughs> Again, well, I mean, I still think there's a role for pharmaceutical promotion and pharmaceutical marketing. And communication. I mean, these are complex decisions that doctors have to make. And you can distill the information to a point where they can deal with it better, as long as you provide them with the background to do their own research, to, to get all the facts, because you can't give them all the facts. There is a reason for it to happen. The question is, what media do you use? What techniques do you use to do this? How hard a sell a company is willing to put behind a product? I think that's changed dramatically. I really do. I think what they want are sales today in the next five minutes to recoup the investment in the first year, first five months, if you will, in some of these drugs, and not investing in the long-term good use of a product and the long-term value to the patient. Look at research in the pharmaceutical industry. Research in the pharmaceutical industry used to look at big categories of illness and what was needed to help a very large number of people. Now it's, let's find a disease with 90,000 patients where we can charge a quarter of a million dollars for a course of therapy. And we can make a billion dollars easily. We can make $10 billion. I mean, look at these new um, hepatitis C drugs right. that have come out. The company that brought the one out, I won't mention their name, announced their financials. They sold worldwide $1.2 billion. Now, like $8.6 billion. Or $8.6 billion, whatever it was. 
a huge number in the first year or two of this drug. 80% or more came from the United States. But that's not now, where the disease is. The disease is not more prevalent in the United States. It's an Asiatic disease. It's all over the world. And yet, that's where the money's going now, where you can charge these enormous amounts for highly targeted drugs. And what's happened? Our antibiotic supplies are falling behind. We're making no progress in big areas that are crying out for improvements. The Ebola research had gone away until this most recently. I mean, they're not doing it. The economics of the business have changed. I think the ethics of the business have changed. I remember when back in the 80s, I guess, Merck was doing a lot of research on river blindness. Yeah, right. I remember. People who have river blindness can't afford to pay for their drugs. But Merck did the research. And then they gave the drug away. They gave it to anybody who wanted it, who needed it. That's a different industry. Yeah, that's not happening today. And today, it looks to me from a distance that most of the research is being done by small companies and then they're being gobbled up by the big companies. That The big companies are spending their money on consumer advertising and lobbying and then they see a product over here that's in an area they want and so they just go buy the product instead of spending money in the research area themselves. Most of these drugs that I've been looking at these past few weeks have all come from small companies that have been gobbled up by a big company. Big Pharma has become phase two, phase three companies. Forget basic research, forget phase one. They're into phase two, phase three. That's where their focus is. That's not a long-term strategy, I don't think. And, And it's interesting because being in phase two and phase three means I'm going to look at these drugs out there based on the size of the market or what I can charge what Medicare will pay, what I can get from the insurance companies, and I'm not looking at, we need to do basic research in this illness, and if we do it well, maybe we can charge this much. Hank Slotnick said to me, talking about market share, his take on it was, I said, you know, most of the product managers want 100% market share in whatever they have. And he said, yeah, my view of it is they should get 100% of the share of who it works for and does a good job. And then they can go marginalize, well, we do a little bit less, you know, efficacy on this group and this group. But he says to look at 100% of an entire market is crazy. And now they have the tools to look at the clinical trials and see who it is who responds. And then if you can identify those people ahead of time, you can treat them much better. But I don't see the companies putting a lot of money into that identification in order to more target their market. No, they, they want, want it all. They want it all. Anybody who's who's vaguely associated with that, we want to share it. That's why broadcast TV and the ads that you say in the journals work so well. We're going to shotgun the entire market and hopefully... And if we get people that it's not right for, that's okay. Maybe they don't even have the disease. That's all right. <laughs> We've got the learned intermediary who will protect us by telling that patient, no, this is not good for acne. It's only good for colon cancer. But I got to tell you, that's not happening because we've got friends and we see some of the meds that they're on and it's frightening. And the numbers of meds that they're on. You say, why are you on this? Well, I saw it on TV or well, my doctor's PA thought it would be good for me. There's a lot, there's, it's scary, you know, because we, we sort of fill that role as learned intermediary for our friends and family and it's really frightening. 
but that's where the especially thing, as we get older. <laughs> but to your point about the FDA, Alan, and word police, the FDA in the fifties and sixties looked at the physician as a learned intermediary. They had a place. And one of the points about, Jane, to your point about all these drugs, which was we were so lucky on the team we had for Donna. Donna had this horrible thing where her physician, you know, somebody left her a voicemail, her primary care that you have six months to live at work. So, you know, she had that. And then we went in and saw the oncologist and... He was brilliant, and Donna sort of threw some tears, said, am I going to die in six months? And he stopped, and he said, let me give you a quick exam. I've read your charts. He gave her an exam, and he said, he sat down, and he said, no. And then he listed out the reasons. You're asymptomatic. Your tumors are small. The meds to the brain is in a great location. I have a great surgeon. And he went through that. And then he stopped and he said, but I'd like you to do one thing for me. He took out a piece of paper from her chart and he drew a horizontal line. And on the left side of the line, he said me. On the right side of the line, he wrote you. He said, on this line, I make all the decisions for you or you make all the decisions for you. I will follow whichever one you want. <laughs> That's clever. Shared decision making. And he did it that simply. I still have that chart. Donna put it in the middle and said, we're going to do this together. He said, right. He Those are special doctors. <laughs> he was yes. very special. That, that that doesn't happen. And and again, it's because he had full control over, you know, he, he was in his 60s. He came up through the ranks. Again, let me thank you for your time. Thank you very much. Our pleasure. Yeah, yeah. it was fun. Thank you for listening to part one and part two of my interview with Alan and Jane. Please leave comments if you have them. And if you'd like to be interviewed, let me know. The world, me, would love to know your opinion about healthcare, healthcare marketing, healthcare advertising, hospice and palliative medicine, and more. Again, thank you for listening. And a special thanks to Paul Ferretti, my editor, who makes this all work. If you need a great audio engineer, it's Paul. I'll be glad to hook you up if you let me know. Thank you.